and welcome back to the Tell It Like It Is podcast. I'm Cassandra Ray. Well, tomorrow's the day. A new president will be sworn in and we will have a woman in the executive office for the first time in American history. Oh, you know, with all of the violence and division, conspiracy theories running rampant on social media, yet another impeachment, not to mention the ongoing pandemic, the economy, all the ways that we and those we love might still be struggling on a daily basis. I think it's really easy to lose sight of just what a significant moment this is for America, for American women, and really for women around the world. Things feel kind of dark right now. And gosh, we definitely have our work cut out for us. But I think we should take just a moment to let ourselves feel proud of what we've accomplished. Kamala Harris isn't going to be the president, but she will co-lead with Biden. And that is really something very new, long overdue, and a huge step forward in America. And so on the eve of the inauguration, I wanted to revisit this amazing episode we recorded just days after the election with four high-profile political women from three countries and across the political spectrum, left, right, and in between, discussing what the Biden-Harris victory means to women around the world. Valérie Petit. Valérie is a member of the French National Assembly. For our American audience, that's roughly equivalent to the U.S. House of Representatives. She represents a constituency in the Département du Nord, which is basically an industrial area of France, once dominated by coal mining, so not totally dissimilar to the areas we once called our Blue Wall in America or our Red Wall in the U.K. Mm-hmm. Valérie, welcome. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you, Cassandra. Louisa Porritt. Uh, Louisa is the Liberal Democrat candidate for London mayor and former member of the European Parliament, where she served as deputy leader of the Liberal Democrat group. Louisa, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Returning guest Diane Morales is a former nonprofit CEO and current Democratic primary candidate for New York City mayor. If successful, she'd be the first woman and first woman of color in that role. Sound familiar? Welcome, Diane. Good morning, Cassandra. Thanks so much for having me. And another friend of the show, CNN political commentator, senior advisor to the Lincoln Project and co-host of The Breakdown on LPTV, Tara Setmayer. Tara, welcome. Thank you for having me back, Cassandra. Tara, let me start with you. What do you think is more significant for women, that we've elected the first woman vice president or that we'll no longer have a pussy grabber in the White House? (laughs) You know, it's a shame that that's the uh, that's the, the the option, right? That's the dichotomy here. <laughs> um, that speaks volumes about how far we've come in the last four years. Uh, you know, it's it's the shameful thing about this is that I actually have to think about that. It shouldn't mm. even be it shouldn't even be a question. It should be mm. that it's absolutely an amazing achievement that we have the first female vice president, the first female vice president of color. And we should be celebrating that unequivocally. But unfortunately, that historical um, fact gets overshadowed by Donald Trump and how destructive and um, threatening he has been to the, he's just an existential threat to our republic here in the US. And so in a way, 
it um, it takes a little bit of the shine away from the, the significance of Kamala Harris's win, um, which I think is unfair to her. And I, and I think, you know, after we get settled here, you know, things are a bit unsettled still because Donald Trump is kicking and screaming and refusing to acknowledge that he lost. Um, mm. We'll have an opportunity to properly celebrate Kamala Harris. You know, I... Um, on uh, over the weekend when the announcement came through, uh, an old friend of mine, we've been friends since we were in the first grade. We went to our first day of school together. His daughters, they're nine and six, and he's a teacher. And he sent me a text message and said, I can't even believe, I can't even begin to tell you how happy I am that my daughters have been paying attention to this election and jumped for joy when the race was called for Biden and Harris. And I said, and it, it actually made me cry because I realized that our efforts to oust Trump and to get in someone like Biden and and Kamala Harris was really for little girls like them. It was for that generation. And now they have someone to look up to in the White House, in the East Wing, that they can be proud of. And I, it broke me down. And I think that's when it finally hit me, the significance of it all. Yeah, I cried. I cried a lot when I was watching her acceptance speech. Diane, you posted an emotional short clip of your reaction to Kamala Harris, a Black woman, winning the vice presidency. What do you think this victory means to women and girls in the Black community? Oh, um, <laughs> it, 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 this is a, it's a huge moment for us. I think, you know, what I posted in the, what I shared in the video was something along the lines of, you know, no matter how I feel about some of her past uh, history and, and record as a, as a prosecutor, there's a black woman headed to the, to the white house in the, in the role as a, a VP. And I mean, for me, there, there's the, there's the representation aspect. There's the lived experience aspect that gets to be reflected finally in, in a major leadership role in this country. But then there's the idea of uh, what she represents as a woman of color, as a you know, daughter of immigrants, in terms of our ability to actually have a role in democracy, to assume the place that is that we are deserving of, that has so long been denied to to our communities, and in, in terms of being able to fully participate, and to me, the the ultimate act of democracy is is you know we talk about voting all the time but it's also the ability to actually run for office and 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 claim a place claim a seat at the table in that way and Kamala has been able to to do that and it is it's a huge win for all of us no matter where we fit on the ideological spectrum because there's someone there who looks like us and and in many ways reflects some of our lived experiences and and you know that's part of the reason why why I'm running is I I think it is it's time for us to actually have a full seat at the table in all aspects of democracy and so you know for me it was a it was one of those moments it, it sort of was a building thing I didn't have an instantaneous reaction when I heard about the news um, I think I think so many of us have spent so much time stealing ourselves over the last four years around the possibility of, of sort of having to go, go through another four years and, and what all of that represents. And so I feel like it took, it took some time. I, it was sort of like the thawing um, of, of a, you know, of, an, of a block of ice. And, and so it took several hours for the, the emotion to hit me. And, and the video that you saw was probably uh, four or five hours in where I, you know, I, I then started to actually feel something. I mean, there was the intellectual reaction 
but then, the, you know, the emotional piece was, was much greater for me. Uh, and it, it took, a, it took a while to get there, but it was, mm. you know, it was, it was extraordinary. And, and you know, and, New, and the streets of New York city were, I mean, you, you've seen the pictures and the videos, but, uh, you know, I was there and I was actually dancing in the street at one point. And that was when it hit me that, you know, wow, uh, you know, I, I, I was struck in that moment by how clearly I had sort of numbed myself and, and how deeply I had buried all of the fear and the anxiety around what we've been dealing with. Um, and, and, you know, looking, looking ahead to what's possible and the sort of potential to reclaim something for us uh, is, was just, it was extraordinary and, and overwhelming. Yeah, I was jealous. I was jealous watching that. Um, um, Louisa and Valerie will also tell you that here in both the UK and France, we're um, we're two and two and three weeks, I think, into our our second national lockdown. So uh, I was mm. jumping up and down in in my house, but but all alone. I, I'm, you know, I've been thinking of something, Diane, and I'm a little I'm a little timid to ask it because obviously I'm I'm a white woman, but I'm wondering what the significance is, if there is significance. Um, to the fact that a black woman made it to the White House first, that that a white woman didn't have to pave the way. I mean, that's a, that's a it's a great question. I think I guess the way I would think about that, uh, I would I would maybe frame that a little bit differently. I, you know, I don't I don't feel personally like white women have paved the way for black women um, in 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 any way. Uh, to be honest, um, I, I think, you know, black women have been the backbone of democracy in this country and they have made it possible for, for us so many times or, you know, time and time again to actually preserve democracy. Um, and so mm-hmm. to me, it feels, um, it feels absolutely right that it should be a black woman first, particularly at this moment in time because mm-hmm. exactly because it has been black women that, that for so long have, have saved us in so many different ways, uh, whether whether at the polls or on the streets, um, and so it is it is is it is of extraordinary significance for so many. You know, historically, um, personally, from a democratic perspective, um, it's it's a huge win for us, and I, I think it's a huge symbol. Um, and, and hopefully it will be a, a huge win for us from a, a, a practical perspective as, as things unfold in, in the new administration. You know, Diane is right yeah. about that, Cassandra, which is interesting that you asked it. And Diane, I appreciate you for being so candid and honest <laughs> um, about it, because uh, I don't think that a white America really recognizes some of the um, decades and decades and decades of of women of color being locked out of the democratic process mm-hmm. or being unrecognized for their role all the way back to women's suffrage you know it was even mm. it was even difficult for women of color to get equality then yep. you know the the their white uh, sisters there suffragettes were to try to tell black black women to march in the back of the line there during during some of those marches and one of my historical heroes Ida B Wells was one of the most vocal women of color in history that wasn't going to put up with that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, she, she famously said to, you know, shine the light, uh, to, to right the wrongs, you have to shine the light of truth upon them. And I think that this election, as we kind of get out of, like I said, that just mired in this, this, this pile of, of crazy with Trump, we'll be able to fully appreciate the fact that Kamala Harris being the first black woman to break this ceiling um, is appropriate 
it, it's, a, it, it's way overdue. And it shows that I think it opens white America's eyes up to the historical, um, just the historical uh, um, disenfranchisement of of women of color. And uh, now that 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 ceiling has been broken. And I think that that's extraordinary and should be celebrated. Yeah. I mean, on that point, Tara, you know, it's estimated and I don't I know that the the exit polls this year are are less reliable than than usual because of how we voted. But, you know, somewhere around, let's say, 55 percent of white women voted for Trump. I do not know these people. I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, it's 55% too many, obviously. 2% um, more than last time. He increased Yeah, it. yeah. I mean, if they're right, you know, and, and even if they're not, you know, if it's 2% more, 2% less, it's just, it's too many. It's really unfathomable. But I, I've heard you previously say that although you didn't vote for Barack Obama, as a woman of color, you could, you know, you were moved by the significance of seeing the first Black person uh, in the office of president. Do you think that seeing a woman as VP will be inspiring even to the women who didn't vote for her? Or are our party tribal, you know, is party tribalism just too far entrenched now? You know, it's tough to say. (laughs) Mm. Uh, I would hope that there are enough women out there, white women who can appreciate Kamala Harris's achievement here um, and cast aside any any policy differences they have. Um, they don't have to agree with the the policies, but at least acknowledge the significance and be and, and be congratulatory for that. But who the hell knows? Our country is so screwed up right now. The fact that 71 million people voted for a freaking sociopath is alarming to me. So it tells yeah. me that we have a much, much deeper societal problem. Um, the character and the soul of this nation, as Joe Biden so aptly uh, campaigned on, it needs to be restored. There needs to be a serious reckoning. Um, the fact that so many women would be would have that much cognitive dissonance and vote for uh, four more years of Donald Trump and Mike Pence, it, it's um, that's going to be studied by political psychologists for quite some time. So I hope so, but who the hell knows? Because this the, yeah. the, this country has got a lot going on that needs to be reckoned with. Luisa and Valerie, I want to bring you in here. You know, my social feeds. Um, I've, I've lived in uh, a few countries around the world, so I'm I'm really privileged to have friends uh, all around the world, and um, they've really just been full of women. You know, in UK, France, Belgium, Switzerland, Luxembourg, Australia. I mean, pretty much anywhere I know women. Uh, I'm seeing them either on my page or on their page or text me or call me. And everybody just seems really moved about Kamala Harris. And I'm wondering what your perspective is. Why does having a woman in the vice presidency in the United States matter to women outside of America? Yeah, it's just to have another look to the the question, because, you know, of course, as many women in France, we are very proud uh, of seeing Kamala being, uh, um, giving us a a, a so impressive um, example and role model for women in in power uh, position. But I think there is another uh, issue, which is the masculine and the feminine dimension of leadership. Because for me, Mm. Uh, what could change in the United 
States is that we have with Trump a very masculine way of being a leader, very egocentric, very aggressive, very bad-tempered. And we are moving to another kind of leadership style, a shared leadership um, and, and this is something very uh, important for us in France because a lot of political women say, oh, they shared, they really shared leadership, Biden and Harris. It's very different sharing leadership. Uh, and they are also more um, uh, feminine because their uh, couple uh, is more on, on reason, on uh, consideration for people. So I think uh, we have also to talk not about, uh, not only about women, but also about the feminine side or dimension of leadership. I think this is something important at stake now. Mm. I know that's an area close to Diane's heart as well. Absolutely. Um, I, I didn't mention in, in the lead in, but um, Valerie's also a, a leadership researcher, um, particularly on this uh, this area of feminine and open leadership, as I think I think what we called it. Is that right, Valerie? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Louisa, what's your view? What's your view of um, of why this is inspiring to to women in the UK? Um, well, I think it's inspiring for women all around the world. I mean, like you, I've got friends in different countries and the reaction was pretty unanimous. And actually, it wasn't just women. I think anyone who's vaguely on the progressive part of the political spectrum felt a massive sense of relief um, when the Biden-Harris um, team won. But seeing Kamala Harris become the first female vice president of the United States is hugely inspiring for um, any women who are in politics or aspiring to be in politics around the world. I mean, here in the UK, we've only had two female prime ministers and they've both been conservative, white, middle-aged women. So we've got a lot of work to do as well. Um, and actually, you know, I'm standing for mayor of London. We've never had a female mayor of London. And this is arguably the most progressive part of the country. So I think for all mm. of us, we're looking at her as this absolute icon and example of what's achievable. And of course, that is particularly inspiring for women of colour, um, because there aren't enough women in leadership, full stop, let alone from ethnic minorities around the world. But you know, I think her becoming vice president also fits in with a general trend of more women leaders coming to the forefront now and also showing what a great job they can do when they are put in positions of leadership politically. We've had Jacinda Ardern being re-elected in New Zealand, Sana Marin in Finland, mm. who's uh, only 34 years old. Um, and, you know, they've both had a really um, strong response to this pandemic and got it under control. And um, what the Biden-Harris administration were offering is competence. And that, that really strikes a contrast with Trump, who has not been able to uh, get this virus under control. And I think it's exposing the, cra the cracks in this strongman populism um, and the fact that it might be... Um, appealing in a, in a campaign, but actually when you actually have to govern and respond to a crisis, there are weaknesses. Yeah. Yeah. Competence is really the word. I mean, you know, even if, even if Trump weren't a sociopath, he would still be deeply, deeply, deeply incompetent. 
Um, and, you know, 200,000, more than 200,000 Americans have, have died as a result, which is just insane. Valerie, the, the wonderfully outspoken mayor of Paris, uh, Anne Hidalgo, who previously called stupid, uh, excuse me, previously called Trump stupid, among She's other very things. very polite. Uh, <laughs> <yeah. laughs> um, she was one of the first um, to send congratulations to, to Biden and Harris, and she minced no words saying, welcome back, America, which, you know, I have to say that as an American living abroad, that's exactly how it felt. It felt like Oh, finally, America is back. Mm. Um, but you represent an area in the north of France, which is a more industrial part of the country. Uh, and like I said, in the lead in, probably a bit more closely aligned with our blue wall um, in the Midwest or, or in the north of England, what we call our red wall. What is the sentiment in the north? Is it is it the same as this kind of, you know, this elation in the in the cities across Europe. Well, the, the sentiment is 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 shared, and uh, there is a an unanimous uh, uh, wave of congratulations. Sorry for my French accent uh, for <laughs> Biden and Harris elections. Uh, we love your French accent, Valerie. Yeah. We love your French. Well, the, the the first main reaction was, as we say in French, oof. It's like a big breath, oof, a relief, <laughs> a national relief, <laughs> and and. We saw, I would say, two types of reaction. First, uh, Anne Hidalgo was not the first uh, to react. The first was the Ministry uh, of Environment, uh, who is actually a, a, a woman, Barbara Pompili. And it was about the fact that uh, America will come back into the Paris Agreement. So for us, the first reaction was about climate and environment and being able to to work again with the United States on this big, big, big uh, challenge. So it was the, the first reaction. Um, and also something more, uh, something about the, 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 the shared responsibility um, we have about the fact that uh, the Trump, uh, the lesson uh, about the Trump um, uh, era is that populism lies at the heart of our democracy. It's not around. This is not a, a threat we have to fight against. It's within the democracy. Uh, and it's, it's a sleeper threat. And we all mm. share, all the democracies are sharing this uh, threat. And we, 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 we must work together. Um, we have to reinforce, uh, multilateralism and, and, and try to, 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 to have a common, uh, fight in front and work against populism. So we have these two types of reaction about environment first and then about fighting together against populism, I think. Mm. Mm. So, yeah, this rise of populism and, you know, I mean, I'm going to go as far as to say neo-fascism in a, in a lot of places is something we're seeing worldwide, certainly within Europe, definitely with, within the US with Trump. I mean, I think if any of us had any doubts as to whether or not Trump it was an actual fascist. Mm. Those have been laid to rest with his his response about losing the election and refusing to accept that. Um, I don't disagree. But Valerie, I'm interested in. Yeah, I mean, no, I've used the term. I, I mean, I've I've backed away. I mean, well, for a while, I didn't want quite to use terms like that because they can be, yeah. inf, you know, inflammatory. But after his behavior, frankly, during the um, the protests over police brutality and the George Floyd killing mm -hmm. here in the U.S. and him deploying. Um, 
fascist tactics in Washington, D.C. against peaceful protesters, um, that's, it, that really just brought it home for a lot of us. And I said, whoa, 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 what the hell is this? And then, mm-hmm. you know, it's just increasingly gotten worse since then. And now his reaction to to the election is um, without question. And it's amazing, more and more people in the U.S. media, you know, pundits and talking heads are using those terms. I mean, I've been talking yeah. a lot about the authoritarian aspect of this, and I've interviewed a lot of, of, of people who are experts in the subject matter on my podcast. Um, and it's, uh, I, I suggest everyone read the book John, by John Dean called Authoritarian Nightmare. And it talks about, you know, not only people like Trump, but the, his followers. What is it about these folks over here in America that are attracted to this? That's the scariest part about that. And, um, you know, that's why the day after the election and I saw the way Trump was behaving and I saw the way Republicans were enabling it. And I said, that's it. I'm done. After 27 years being with the Republican Party, I quit. I said, "I, I can't be associated with this anymore. There is no room for repudiation. Clearly, with so many people supporting Trump and his authoritarian, neo-fascist ways, um, that there's just no role for sane, cons- pragmatic conservatives like myself in the Republican Party anymore. And that was a big reason for it. Yeah, you know, I had a really painful um, exchange over the the five days we were waiting for uh, for the election to be called with my brother, who um, lives in Southwest Florida, you know, is a is a just a generally a good guy. He's working class. He's a single dad. Um, and I hadn't realized four years ago when we talked about voting, uh, voting and I asked him to vote for Hillary Clinton, um, even though he's he hadn't been political ever in his whole life. Um, and he said, you know, I just think they're both bad. And in the four years since, he has been completely radicalized. I mean, he's, and, and that is the word to use. I mean, he is radicalized MAGA. He, he was you know, telling me all about the Biden crime family and um, and how the election was stolen and, and without irony, you know, he mm. really believed it. And that's really sad. And, I, and I'm not sure what I'm going to do about this in my own family. But, you know, the 55% of white women aside in the U.S., what we've seen these patterns uh, throughout, throughout Europe, again, and, and in America, where time and time again, fewer women vote for the neo-fascist or the populist candidate than men do. Um, you know, in, in France, um, 68% of, excuse me, 68% of women voted for Macron above um, Marine Le Pen. Um, in, uh, in the UK, where women have historically, more women have historically voted conservative. In this last election, um, 58% of women voted Labour or another party, Lib Dem um, or other party. Um, and that's, you know, that was a change. Now, I'm not going to call Johnson a fascist, but I do think it's clear that he came into power on a wave of populism. Um, and, and in the U.S., it looks like about, you know, 56% of women overall voted for Biden. If, you know, I guess, Luis, let me let me post this to you first, but I'm actually interested in everybody's thoughts. I mean, do you think that women are, are more resilient uh, to populist messaging? And do you think it doesn't resonate with as many women as it does men? I think it really depends on what form that populism takes. I don't think that women are completely immune from populism. I think part of it has to do with age as well. I think young women tend to be less likely to be in favour of populism. Um, But actually, 
In terms of uh, the election results in the UK um, in December 2019, there were women over 50 who the majority of which tended to vote conservative. But if you look at how younger women voted, well, they tended to vote for more progressive parties. Um, in the US, mm-hmm. I remember seeing this program where um, one of our former Labour politicians, Ed Balls, did a tour to kind of understand Trumpism and, and what is it about in America. And he went to this thing called the Trumpet Ball, which I'm sure many of you will be um, familiar with, um, which is women that fundraise for Trump. So I think it's it's easy to think that um, women are never susceptible to populism, but the reality is that some of them are. Um, and looking at France, for example, Marine Le Pen leads the Front National. So um, there are also some women at the forefront of populism. Um, but yeah, you can also see that there are young women who are leading the fight against this strong man populism. And that's particularly the case in Hungary, where Viktor Orban is a strong man populist in power. And when I was in the European Parliament, there were two young women um, in my po- wider political group. Um, liberals from Hungary, who are basically the only national politicians um, leading the fight against him. And they are the progressive voices in their country. Uh, Their names are Anna Donath Mm. and um, Catalin Kessa. I'd recommend them for your podcast one day in the future. I mean, their stories are fascinating. I'd love that. Um, So yeah, yeah, I think... It, it's easy to generalize, but we can't be too complacent. Hmm. Maybe Valerie, I'm interested. Oh, yeah, go ahead, please. Yes. Yeah, maybe to, just to, to enrich what uh, Louisa said is that I think the first step is, is really to not to forget that we have to fight again and again for uh, women's rights and women's education. But I, th- because I think it's key to fight against populism, reason, um, and, and rights and equality. It's, it's really the, the weapon uh, to, to, to make women more and more powerful and, and able to to do their choice um, even in the, the political uh, area. And, and second, I, I think that um, among the feminine values and these feminine values uh, can be shared by men and, and women, we have caring each other, uh, taking responsibility for the community uh, and the future. So I think maybe it's an explanation of why women tend to be a little bit less uh, attracted by populism, but we have the counter example in France with Marine Le Pen. So it's it's, it's a very um, multifaceted question, I think. Yeah, it's definitely nuanced. I mean, Valerie, I was interested in in your point of view on this as well. Um, you know, in America, the vast majority of Democratic voters are in cities, not only in cities, but the majority are in cities. Um, but Macron and En Marche seem to have been more successful at making the case to rural and industrial voters, um, you know, not to vote for, for Marine Le Pen. They, he seemed to get a lot more support from, from that section of voters than we have certainly been successful in getting, at least in America. And I think it would probably be fair to say in, in the UK as well. 
Why do you think, I mean, if you, if you can, if there are parallels, why do you think um, En Marche was, was more successful at making that case to, you know, former, former industrial kind of voters? Because um, the last election, um, um, people uh, who voted for Macron was mainly in big cities. Okay. Uh, but part of these big cities are industrial uh, area. But the, the variable, uh, the important variable was big cities. And and, and we have, uh, for example, we have the Gilets Jaunes, the yellow jackets, uh, which yeah. was a populist movement uh, in France two years ago, they are coming from the suburbs. Uh, and, and we have a big opposition uh, and conflict between France from suburbs and, and France um, of, in the big cities uh, because people are more... Uh, Oh, sorry, I tend to vote to Macron in big cities. So it's not so clear. Uh, it's not so clear, in fact. So I, I can't answer because it's not so clear the, um, the analysis about industrial area. Hmm. So it's the same problem everywhere. Mm. Diana, I'm wondering, I'm wondering, you know, look, Mitch McConnell already stacked, not just the Supreme Court, but federal judgeships writ large with conservative, mostly anti-choice justices. Um, The Democrats probably are not going to win the Senate, although we are going to try like hell in Georgia. Um, And in state elections, they they really didn't make the gains they were hoping for. So with all that being said, how will having a Biden uh, Biden and Harris in office really make any difference to the day-to-day lives of American women? You know, I, I think I think uh, that there's a possibility, you know, th- there's hope and possibility that a, a Biden-Harris administration will begin to set the table for a different paradigm and a different framework and, and a, shift, a shift back to sort of some of the, to reclaiming some of the the gains that we've lost over the last four years. It it is absolutely true that some of the damage that has been done by the Trump administration, we will, we will feel the consequences and the ripple effects of that for, for decades and potentially generations to come. Um, If, if the Biden Harris administration don't in fact act, I think, you know, strongly in a, in a very strongly progressive direction. I, I think one of the things, one of the things right now that concerns me, you know, assuming that we are able to navigate and manage through a, a successful and peaceful transition, um, I, I'm concerned about the American public getting lulled into a false sense of complacency. Um, I, I think we, I think we suffered from a little bit of that after the, the after the election of Obama. Um, and, mm. and I think there's a, there's a danger of that happening right now. The, the, the reality of it is that the last eight months have have revealed deeply rooted, you know, symptoms of of a disease that this country has suffered from for a really really long time, and, and the, the focus, the sort of false sense of focus on the Trump administration as as being the root of the problem, I think is is fundamentally flawed because, in my perspective, the, the Trump administration is, is also just a symptom of of this this disease that we've suffered from for, for a really long time. We need the political courage and the will right now to actually fundamentally transform some of these systems and structures that have made it possible for the, the, the Trump administration to, to do what it's done and to, to, to wreak the, you know, 
the damage that, that, that they have, the havoc that they have. Um, and I also think that one of the things that's really important uh, moving forward is really focusing and looking at uh, on the local level what we can do on the on the local level, which is also part of why um, I'm so focused on. Yeah, I say so focused, but at the same time, my focus is most definitely split. Um, you know, <laughs> on the local level, in terms of what we what we can do on the local level to to create the changes that we need and to begin to transform our, our leadership and governance structures in such a way that we really are centering equity and justice for everyone. I, I, you know, I think at the, the root of all of this in, in the United States, there is a, you know, there's a fundamental rift around racial issues. And until we're ready to fully reflect and reconcile with our history um, and, and our past, we're not going to be able to actually move forward in a, in a sort of strong, united and progressive way. And I, you know, I, I don't think that reflecting and, and reckoning with our past, our, our legacy and the damage that has been done means that we have to be condemned to repeat it. But I, I do think mm. that we have to have the courage to actually acknowledge that and, um, and, and face that and actually learn from it to do things differently moving forward. So I, you know, I, I'm going to echo what's been said. That it, is a, it is a complicated and, and complex sort of path forward for us, um, but we need to have the collective will to actually take that on and, and tackle those challenges. Because I think, you know, if nothing else, the last four years have revealed to us that, you know, our democracy is, is really, you know, in a, in a fragile state um, and, and that we got this close and are this close to, to sort of dismantling so many things upon which we're supposedly built is highly problematic and concerning. Um, the fragility of our system has been revealed in a way that I, I don't think we can pretend to unsee. And I don't think that we should, you know, allow ourselves to be to get too comfortable no matter what transpires in the, in the, in the coming months. Mm. Tara, I'm I'm interested in in your perspective specifically around this. Um, you know what's been mentioned before, and the research indicates that that women share power differently than men. We lead differently than men, and we share power differently than men. And it it seems to me that if we're going to move forward in America, and if we're going to heal some of these divisions that have been, you know, made very very deep by rise of by the rise of populism in a lot of countries, we're going to need to hold space for people who see the world differently than we do. Um, and I don't, I don't want to, um, I'm in a happy mood about what has happened. And so I, I don't want to uh, dwell on the infighting that has already begun in the Democratic Party. But I do want to ask you, do women have a special role in helping to create a dialogue amongst people who see the world differently, who hold different views, uh, who might land in different places on the political spectrum. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think that we've historically seen that happen when women are in these types of roles. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of academic research on the successful way that women um, work together, seek to solve problems, um, so I, I don't see why that would change now. Um, you know, yeah. I think women are uniquely positioned to, you, women are uniquely positioned to kind of cut out the BS now 
and be the adult in the room. You know, <laughs> women are mothers mm-hmm. and, and oftentimes they, you know, they are the referees in their families and it just comes as a natural. And even if you're not, it just comes as a natural, um, I think, instinct for women to say, okay, what, what's the problem? How do we solve it? Because we're multitaskers. Men oftentimes are very one-dimensional and often mm-hmm. can be run by their egos. And, um, I, I, you know, I think we, we see that more in these populist movements. You know, I, I was thinking about this as you guys were talking, what is it about men that are more attracted to this populist movement and this kind of authoritarianism versus women? And I just think that comes from being in positions of power for so long. Men have run everything for most of history. Um, it's only been recent history that women have have really been able to um, become, you know, have larger leadership roles. And it's a threat to, you know, change threatens men and their positions of power. So naturally, if they've been the majority and they've been ruling things, a populist message, nationalist message gives them the, gives them hope to believe that they can, that their position won't be threatened anymore. I just think it has yeah. to do with the patriarchy, um, why they're yeah. attracted to, to populism a bit more than, than women are. Because populism yeah. has shut them out, um, has shut women out in the past. So, uh, you know, I look at, in, in, at Congress and I, I looked at, um, you know, in 2018 when so many women w- won their seats in Congress, uh, mostly Democratic women. And this time around, you have um, a bunch of Republican women that won seats back. Um, but I feel like those women will be, except for the crazy QAnon conspiracy theorists, which is a whole different dynamic, whole thing. Lord. Um, yeah. But for the most part, um, you know, you see women as part of the problem solvers caucus. You know, there's a women's caucus where they they bond over things more than just this, this political tribalism. So, I mean, I do have some hope that women will be the adults in the room here and try to get the, try to right this ship. Yeah. And uh, I want to get your views on this, Diane, and, and also your views on this, Tara. But, you know, I've, I've also been thinking about what it means not just to have a woman, um, not just to have a, a, a black woman, you know, have Indian woman in, in the White House, but also, you know, a woman who is the daughter of immigrants. Um, and, and I don't know if it's well understood, and it'd be interesting to hear Louisa and Valerie on this, but if it's well understood just how, just how much this the American dream of being the melting pot and being the home of of immigrants who came in search for a better life is part of our national identity and part of our individual identities as being American. And there's something that's that's so deeply resonant about her story with the American dream. And I feel like, you know, after these years of demonizing refugees and separating children from their parents and putting them in cages and ending DACA, you know, the world was not seeing us in that way. I don't know if it had been seeing us in that way for a while, but certainly if it had, it stopped. And I think we, I had certainly been wondering, you know, that felt like a threat to my identity as American. You know, it just seems so antithetical to what it meant to be American. And I'm wondering if if particularly having a daughter of immigrants in the White House is is sort of a victory to revive the American dream in this way. I don't know if Diane, you want to take that first. Sure. I mean, so I think I think your question is is really relevant because it it strikes at the heart of what I think has been actually a a, 
a, a fissure in in the American identity to begin with for a long, long time, right? Because I I, I am not sure that everyone has embraced the notion of the you know the American dream or you know identity being being one that is sort of more of a tossed salad, right? Of of all sorts mm. of people from all sorts of backgrounds coming and contributing to the larger, you know, the larger whole or the greater good. I, I think I think there's been um, conflict throughout our history around what it means to be American. And, you know, the whole difference between you have to assimilate, you have to speak one language, you have to be, you have to be, you have to fit this mold in order to be considered a true American, as opposed to sort of the ideology that you express, which is more, you know, uh, we are welcoming and embracing of all, of all people from all places. And we recognize what everyone brings to the table and what immigrants in fact have contributed to this country and how we've built this country you know, immigrants have helped build this country in addition to, you know, the history of immigrants and what they have done to the Native Americans and, you know, and those, those folks that were mm. here before us. And so, you know, I, I do think, though, that in the, the current moment in time, um, given what has happened over the last several years, that it, it, this is a, is, it is an important sort of recognition of uh, someone who, you know, is the daughter of immigrants and what they have contributed to this country you know, good, bad, or indifferent, but, but the fact that they are, that she is someone who has actively contributed and participated in, in governance and and in democracy in, in a different way. And, and so I think it is a really, really important sort of repudiation of the, the narrative, the national narrative that this administration has created around who immigrants coming to this country are, what they look like, um, and the, the sort of behaviors that they engage in. It's a really important sort of part of acknowledging that, uh, that you know, the Im- immigrants are actually the backbone of this country in so many ways, right? When we, you, you think about the, the pandemic and who was doing the work, who was doing the essential, who were the essential workers, yeah. who were the heroes of this, of this country during that period of time? Aside, aside from those in the healthcare pers- profession, it was often those who were, you know, at the bottom tier of the economic ladder, um, who who are living you know, one check or you know one tip away from total economic disaster, um, and I think it's really important for us to acknowledge that and to elevate that. And, and her stepping into this role in the White House creates a pathway for that possibility to to you know that it might actually come to fruition that we might actually begin to shift the narrative on a national level about who immigrants are and what they contribute to this country. Hmm. Tara, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, um, in my, my great grandparents, I'm biracial. So, um, my father's from Guatemala. Um, I didn't grow up with him, but his family escaped the Guatemalan, um, communist takeover there in the 50s and came here to the U.S. to seek refuge. Um, my great grandparents came through Ellis Island. Um, my grandfather's family came from Germany. My grandmother's family came from Italy. And, um, you know, I, I looked at what was happening under Donald Trump and this very uh, xenophobic attitude that was taking hold. And it was so deeply offensive to me, um, mm. listening to Trump tell members of the squad and, and people who are American citizens to go back to where they came from. I vehemently disagree with AOC and the squad and their political views, 
But how dare he tell them to go back where they came from when they're American citizens? That enraged me. And I was very tough on border security and immigration reform. Um, I come from a law enforcement family and I worked on immigration issues when I worked on Capitol Hill. And so, you know, I I looked at, okay, we've, we've got to tighten up our immigration system. There's a lot of issues here, but that wasn't about locking people out and that wasn't about, um, for me anyway, it wasn't about this this white nationalist um, kind of movement that was emerging. Um, and, and I looked at what was going on and just was horrified by it. So to see that the American people, and I spoke out, you know, during the Trump Trump years, I've been very vocal about this. And, um, and I just feel like finally the... Shining City on a Hill, the the promise of the Statue of Liberty, those things can now be reapplied and we can start to have those conversations again because Kamala Harris represents the everything about that experience. And she does it in a way that is not what some of these people look at as the typical immigrant experience either, which is good because not all immigrants are the same. Not every, everyone has different experiences and she embodies... Um, a really unique American story that is inspirational, particularly given how powerful her mother, her mother's role in her life was during her her um, upbringing. So mm-hmm. she comes from you know a line of strong women, and um, and she can share that experience, which will be incredibly inspiring. So I look forward to reintroducing that idea of the Statue of Liberty in America being welcoming to um, the tired, the poor, your huddled masses that has been lacking so badly. And it's part of what the American allure is. It's why people try to get here and risk their lives to get here. And, um, you know, we need to fix some of the some of the broken problems of the immigration system, but that doesn't mean that we don't welcome immigrants. That's what this country is felt, uh, founded on. So mm-hmm. I welcome it. I think that there's an, an opportunity to have those conversations again in a positive way. Yeah. Louisa, do you think that um, this victory has um, restored some of America's, for lack of a better word, brand internationally? (laughs) I certainly think that it has. I mean, it's also provided a beacon of hope for progressives around the world. But I think we're all hugely relieved that you know, Joe Biden has promised to take the US straight back into the Paris Accord on climate change, that the US will um, rejoin the World Health Organization. That multilateralism mm. and his belief in it, um, I think is really, really critical because one of the reasons so many of us outside of the US were despairing what over the four years Trump was in power was the way that the US seemed to be turning its back on the rest of the world. Um, and how brilliant. I mean, I've, I've loved listening to uh, what the other women on this podcast had to say about Kamala Harris and how she embodies the opposite of this toxic, divisive, anti-immigrant rhetoric that we've seen not just in the US, but in countries across the West, frankly. And I don't think that battle is over. But the fact that you can have a woman who is also the daughter of immigrants becoming vice president of the United States is a kind of shining example for everywhere else. Um, And I think a really good point was made about how immigration is desirable. It's a good thing for countries. Diversity is the source of our strength. And 
as a Londoner, that's very intuitive to me, but I completely recognize that a, a lot of people don't see it that way. So um, this could be the start of, of turning around the conversation about that. Yeah, I'm hoping that this this issue of which I, I know sounds boring. It's it doesn't sound sexy like multilateralism <laughs> and internationalism, but I'm hoping that it can be one of those areas where we can start to find common ground between you know the center right, the center left, the further left, the progressive. You know because it's just common sense. And, and I think a lot of us, except the more extreme populace, of course, we're looking at the last four years of Trump and frankly, looking at, at uh, certainly the, the UK government here and saying, this is just the wrong direction for progress. It doesn't have anything to do with left and right. It doesn't make sense. It, it, we're not going to solve problems that way. Um, and so I think you're I'm glad that you that you've mentioned it again. And, uh, and I'm hoping it's one of those areas that we can find common ground and move on. I want to end just on uh, something that came to me. Somebody uh, mailed this to me. I asked um, our listeners and a couple of other people I knew to send me their thoughts on, on what the Biden-Harris victory meant to them. And somebody sent me um, this short piece. Um, she's she's from uh, Southwest Florida, that same area that my brother lives in, which has been highly radicalized. Trump flags, I mean, flags, not signs everywhere. She's a single mom of two. One of her kids has um, pretty extreme autism. She is working class, for sure, um, doesn't have a lot of money. And I was sort of expecting her to say not much. You know, my, my life isn't going to change that much. But instead, this is what she said. It means we're more than caregivers and homemakers. It means we're not limited to having men make most executive decisions, especially ones that apply only to us, like our right to choose what we do with our own bodies. It means women of color get the chance to see equal representation. It means girls growing up will see that we don't have to limit ourselves or water ourselves down. We can only go up from here. And I think that says it all. So thank you so much for your time, uh, ladies. I can't wait to stay in touch. I can't wait to see what happens next. Thank you, thank you so, so much, much Sandra. Thank you all. Thanks to everyone for listening. If you've enjoyed the series so far, please do subscribe, rate, and leave a review wherever you're listening right now. It really does help put the series in front of more badass women and a few men too by increasing how we rank. While you're at it, check out the show notes for more info on our guests and to find out how to reach us on all the socials. As always, if you've got a story and you want to tell it like it is, I'd love to hear from you.